Hello and welcome to the Indiana Lawyer Podcast, your source for news and Hoosier law brought to you by Taft. I'm Olivia Covington, Indiana Lawyer Editor and your host this week. Happy 2024. The new year is already off with a bang, with several notable news stories coming out of the world of Indiana law. As always, I'm here in our Monument Circle studio with Daniel Carson and Alexa Shrake to give you the rundown on that news. Plus, I chat with Cindy Booth and Phyllis Armstrong, the retired and new leaders of Child Advocates, about what's next for the child welfare nonprofit. So let's get started. Today is Wednesday, January 10th, 2024, and these are your headlines. Alexa, why don't you start us off with some news from the U.S. Supreme Court? Nation's justices are considering whether to take a case brought by the Martinsville School District after the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals ordered the school to allow a transgender boy to use school restrooms that align with his gender identity. The case was initially scheduled for the justices' January 5th conference, although it has been rescheduled and a new date wasn't posted at the time we recorded this. The student, A.C., was in middle school in Martinsville when the case was first filed in the Indiana Southern District Court, but he's in high school now. The district court granted an injunction requiring the middle school to let him use the boys' restroom, and the Seventh Circuit affirmed. The school district then filed a cert petition raising the question of whether Title IX and the Equal Protection Clause dictate a single national policy that prohibits local schools from maintaining separate bathrooms based on students' biological sex. The school says there is an undeniable circuit split on the issue that cries out for the Supreme Court intervention. But late last year, the American Civil Liberties Union filed a brief opposing cert. It listed five reasons for the justices to reject the case, including that the case is moot because A.C. is now in high school and the appealed injunction applied to his middle school. The ACLU also says the circuit split is shallow and temporary, and it argues that the Seventh Circuit's decision was correct because the school did, in fact, violate AC's rights. We'll keep an eye on the docket and let you know what the justices decide. Thanks, Alexa. Now let's go over to you, Daniel, for some local court news out of Fort Wayne. Judge Francis C. Gull is going to head up the Allen Superior Court for the next two years as its 2024-2025 chief judge. Allen Superior Court's Board of Judges elected Gull to serve a two-year term as chief judge that began on January 1st. According to the court, Gull has served as a judge in the Allen Superior Court since January 1st, 1997. She was first elected judge in 1996 and has been re-elected four times. For more than 20 years, Gull has served as administrative judge of the court's criminal division overseeing the day-to-day operations of six criminal courts, including the misdemeanor and traffic and felony courts. She succeeds Judge Jennifer L. DeGroote, who just completed a two-year term as chief judge that began in 2022. Gull was also re-elected to serve as administrative judge of the Superior Court's criminal division, while DeGroote was elected administrative judge of the civil division, and Judge Lori K. Morgan was elected administrative judge of the family relations division. Going a little farther north, I have an update on a case I've been following out of Elkhart. If you've been an Indiana lawyer reader for a while, you likely remember the name Andrew Royer. He's the 48-year-old man with severe disabilities who was exonerated back in 2021 after being convicted of murder in 2005. 
After his exoneration, Royer sued the city of Elkhart, the county, and several law enforcement officials, claiming his rights were violated during the investigation of the murder. A particular issue in his case is the claim that a former police detective exploited his mental disabilities to coerce a false confession. The case was filed in federal court in the spring of 2022, and at the end of 2023, Royer's legal team announced that the city and several former law enforcement officers had agreed to pay $11.7 million to settle the case. According to his lawyers, that's the largest wrongful conviction settlement in state history. It's also the fourth settlement that the Chicago firm of Lovey & Lovey has secured in wrongful conviction cases filed against Elkhart. The other three settlements involve the cases of Christopher Parrish, Keith Cooper, and Max Sims. All told, the city has paid more than $26 million to Lovey & Lovey clients. Royer's case is still ongoing as to the defendants who did not participate in the settlement. That includes Elkhart County Prosecutor Vicki Becker and former police detective Carl Conway, the officer accused of coercing Royer into making a false confession. Attorneys for the defendants who did settle didn't respond to my request for comment. I also have some news about a lawsuit filed this month related to the July 2022 shooting at the Greenwood Park Mall. On January 2nd, the Indianapolis firm Cohen & Malad filed the first lawsuit on behalf of victims of the shooting that left three people dead and others injured. One of the people injured is one of the plaintiffs, Kaya Stewart. She suffered serious injuries but survived her gunshot wounds. Kaya, along with her sister, who was identified in court documents as O.S., were both in the mall's food court on July 17, 2022, when Jonathan Douglas Sapperman opened fire. While O.S. wasn't hit with a bullet, the packages she was carrying were. The sisters, along with their parents, are now suing Simon Property Group, which owns the mall and its security company, Allied Universal Event Services. Their complaint alleges that with the rise of mass shootings in malls and other public locations, the threat of a shooting at the Greenwood Park Mall was foreseeable. Also, they're arguing that if proper security protocols had been followed, Sapperman could have been identified and stopped before he opened fire. The complaint recalls the timeline of events on the day of the shooting, from when Sapperman entered the mall at 4.54 p.m. and spent an hour in a bathroom assembling his weapons, to when he emerged from the bathroom at 5.56 p.m. and began shooting. The bathroom wasn't checked during the hour Sapperman was in there, and there was no security in the food court at the time of the shooting, according to the complaint. A press release from Cohen and Malad says, quote, If the dozens of video feeds throughout the parking lot and mall were adequately staffed and or all the cameras were working properly and or if the food court had been appropriately monitored by security personnel, this incident should have been preventable, end quote. The plaintiffs are seeking economic and non-economic damages. Neither Simon Property nor Allied responded to my request for comment on the lawsuit. We'll keep an eye on this case and bring you updates as they happen. Coming back to you, Daniel, why don't you tell us about the new interim director of the state's Office of Environmental Adjudication? Jefferson Garn, currently deputy director and general counsel in the Office of Administrative Law Proceedings, is going to be overseeing another state office that is expected to merge with his. Garn has been named the interim director of the Office of Environmental Adjudication, or OEA. He will provide oversight of OEA while legislation is pursued to consolidate the office with the Office of Administrative Law Proceedings, known as OALP. The consolidation of the two agencies will provide administrative efficiencies, further modernize case record documentation, 
and provide resources to support the review of environmental cases, according to the governor's office. OEA was created in 1995 to serve as an independent agency tasked with reviewing actions of the Indiana Department of Environmental Management. OALP was created in 2019 to provide a central and independent review of agency disputes of more than 24 state agencies. Prior to starting in his role at OALP in March, Garn most recently worked as Section Chief of Administrative and Regulatory Enforcement Litigation for the Office of the Indiana Attorney General, according to LinkedIn. Judge Mary Davidson, who served as OEA director for 20 years, retired in December. Alexa wrote a story about Davidson for our November 22nd issue. You can read it on our website. Thanks, Daniel. Now, Alexa, why don't you tell us about the Indiana man who's serving federal prison time for COVID-related fraud? Timmy Tope Adeboy will serve more than four years in federal prison after he pleaded guilty to wire fraud, aggravated identity theft, and other offenses related to COVID unemployment fraud. At issue was the provision of the 2020 CARES Act that allowed prospective unemployment claimant to request that their benefits be placed onto a prepaid debit card. According to the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District of Indiana, Addie Boy was found in possession of several unemployment debit cards under different names. The cards had been issued by the state of Nevada, but he was arrested in Indianapolis for driving with a suspended license, and that arrest led to the discovery of the debit cards. He used the debit cards to purchase money orders and other items of value, like a Lexus. He was also in possession of about 32 fake driver's license from Illinois, Pennsylvania, and Ohio, some including the same stolen identities as the unemployment debit cards. After his release from prison, Addie Boy will be supervised by the U.S. Probation Office for three years. Also, he was ordered to pay more than $800,000 in restitution. And finally, to wrap up this week's headlines, Alexa, tell us about the legislative preview story you're working on for our next issue. It is my favorite time of the year (laughs) when the legislature is back in session. The Indiana General Assembly officially returned to the Statehouse on January 8th, and we have several bills that we're keeping an eye on this year. I am compiling an easy-to-follow list of those bills for the 2024 legislative session. The bills include changes to guardian ad litem and child in need of services cases, the right to carry firearms at the state house by certain state officials, and marijuana legalization, among other topics. You can read about those bills in the January 17th issue of the Indiana Lawyer. Thanks, Alexa. I know you love covering the state house, so I'm sure you will have lots of stories for us over the next few months. Okay, that'll do it for this week's headlines. As always, if you want more legal news, check us out at theindianalawyer.com. Stick around after our sponsor break to hear my interview all about child advocates. Taft, today's modern law firm. At Taft, we cultivate a highly respectful, transparent workplace that fosters creativity, teamwork, inclusion, and diversity. We couple our culture with a client-first approach, rewarding lawyers who understand their clients' goals and work to deliver success. Taft, the modern law firm. To learn more, visit taftlaw.com. Welcome back to the January 10th, 2024 episode of the Indiana Lawyer Podcast. For this week's extended interview, I'm joined via Teams by Cindy Booth. Hi. And Phyllis Armstrong. 
Hi there. They are the former and current CEOs of Child Advocates. So just a little bit of background. Cindy retired from the child welfare nonprofit last month, and Phyllis succeeded her as CEO this month. So Cindy has been with the group since 94, and Phyllis joined in 98. So lots of experience here. (laughs) So Phyllis, we'll start with you. Um, as the new CEO, why don't you kind of just give us a, a high-level look at your career and your your work in this space? I started my career as a, a lawyer um, with a public defender office um, in Muni Courts many, many moons ago. And from there, I landed with the Department of Child Services that was at that time called the uh, Welfare Department. That's how long ago that was. Okay. But I was an attorney, a staff attorney for them for several years until Cindy asked me to lunch in 98 and <laughs> persuaded me to join Child Advocates. And I was at that time hired as the attorney for their child custody program. So we represented children's interests in contested paternity cases and divorce cases. And I did that for many years and was a director of that program for a while as well. I left uh, and joined the mediation group, was a co-founder of their family practice, um, and was there for several years um, and came back to Child Advocates to mediate um, the termination of parent-child relationship cases in Marion County uh, on staff at Child Advocates. And I was a director of mediation for a while as well. And then thereafter, about three and a half years ago, I was promoted to the vice president of program operations. And so I was over um, all of our programs at that time. And then here I am. (laughs) All right. Now, Cindy, same question for you. You know, you had 30 years uninterrupted with child advocates. Did you do anything before that? I was a music teacher. Interesting. Okay. (laughs) Yes, I was a music teacher and then went to, stayed home with my kids for a while um, and then went to law school. And when I came out of law school, I I said, you know, I'm not sure I want to practice law. Just happened to be at the attorney lounge, the old attorney lounge at juvenile court. And someone said, I think we're hiring a part-time attorney. And so that's how I started in 94 as a part-time attorney, became full-time when we had funding to do it in 95, (laughs) then became director in 96. Okay. Wow. So I have a, a two-part question that I'm going to ask each of you. And, and Cindy, I'll start with you. Okay. So given, you know, 30 years with this organization, the biggest change you've seen at Child Advocates itself, and then also within kind of the child welfare world more specifically? Well, the easy one, the biggest change that Child Advocates um, experienced was the contract being awarded to another organization, the contract sure. for the guardian Lightum CASA. What I think the biggest change that I can say, um, how we pivoted from that was remarkable and I think showed the resilience of our staff and ex- the experience that our staff has. And so that was the biggest thing that I think happened to us over my 30-year period. Phyllis, what about you? I would I agree with Cindy in that. I also would say that kind of as we pivoted and our expansion, um, you know, con- consisted of continuing our the work we were doing, but also becoming Indiana's first single access site for the Division of Mental Health's Children's Wraparound Service, Child Wraparound Service Program. Um, we did that about two and a half years ago, two years ago, we received that contract. And we are, formerly there were 26 access sites and that they decided to go to one and that is Child Advocates. So we are working in all 92 counties with that work and which that also then gave us 
some more exposure. And we have since expanded many of our programs, our other programs into other counties in the state. So we are able to help more and more children and families. So that's kind of been twofold. Interesting. Tell me more about that. What's it mean to be the the access site? Um, we are connect families and children to the state's wraparound program. So we help okay. them apply and we also put them in touch with other community resources that they may be interested in or needing. Now, what about kind of zooming out? And there may be more than one answer to this question, but, you know, looking back at, at 30 years of this work, have you seen any major policy shifts and how you know these child welfare cases are addressed that seem notable to you? Question for either one of you. Yeah, I'll just say I think it goes back and forth between, you know, everybody says uh, what is old is new again, you know, (laughs) things just go in cycles. And I think we've seen a policy where fewer kids are drawn into the welfare system. Then we see everybody's been drawn into the welfare system Mm -hmm. and back and forth like that. What I'd like to see, and I think this is coming to Indiana because Indiana is one of six states that does not have attorneys for children by statute. I think that's a a really big change that has taken a much longer time than it should have to Indiana, for Indiana, to make that change. And so it's gratifying to know that we're, you know, once again at the forefront of that. And I think that's a really important change that will come and should come. Phyllis? Yeah, I I piggybacking on that, I mean, that was the other part of uh, the other thought I had to my prior answer, which is the other biggest change for us is that we are involved in the first of its kind randomized controlled trial in state, providing attorneys for children and kids 12 and up and trying to, you know, look at that, evaluate that, that work. And hopefully others will see what we have experienced in doing the work, providing attorneys for children, the benefits to them. And hopefully we can start to improve outcomes for foster youth because right now they're pretty bleak. Olivia, if I might add to my question, because I've, as Phyllis was talking, I was thinking about this is a really important change that I think is aligned with our talk about direct representation, attorneys for children in the child welfare system. One thing that has happened over the 30 years that, that I see, and I think it needs to improve even more, is listening to those young people with lived experience and listening to what having them help us make policy changes and really understanding what the effect of being in the child welfare system was on their lives and then doing something different or doing more of the same if that, that was something good. So I think that's something that over the last maybe even 10 years has really improved when you think about BIPOC children and youth and LGBTQ+. I think there's more listening and more awareness of what have we done to you as you've been in the child welfare system and how can we get better? I wanted to make sure that I um, honored that. Sure. And Phyllis, picking up on something you said, um, talking about that randomized study, I think we at Indiana Lawyer have reported on it just a little bit, but I mean, is there anything initial you could share coming out of that? So we we launched it in November, and yeah. uh, we are working with the University of Notre Dame's Wilson Sheehan Lab for Economic Opportunities. In short, they call it LEO. They are providing the research team to us, and we worked quite a bit with them in getting prepared to launch. And we launched um, in November in LaPorte County, and we are several other counties since then. And we'll continue, hopefully, to add a few more counties into this year. Um, it is a three-year study, so we okay. are very early on in it and are sure. I'm excited, as are the stakeholders that, that we're working with, to kind of do the work and to have the results measured and, and see, hopefully improve our practices and also just inform inform many other stakeholders, policymakers. 
all the above. And so the reason I wanted to bring you two on together is to kind of, you know, talk about this time of transition for the organization. And so, Phyllis, I'll start with you. You know, as you kind of take the helm, do you have a vision or, or goals or anything that you're kind of building on? Fortunately, I've been handed an organization that has one incredibly solid platform, some foundation. Cindy has been a visionary throughout her time here and um, was never one to be complacent and, and accept the status quo. So as she saw needs for children, uh, she created programs to serve them. And, and you know, we did our work in child welfare, but uh, and that is a system in itself and had many gaps, I think, for children. And so Cindy has added programs like educational liaisons. We provi- provide free mediators to stakeholders in the both chins and termination cases, and now lawyers for children in child welfare cases are interrupting racism for children programs. So really all in education liaison, I think I already said. So all of those programs, um, you know, to obviously continue them, sustain them, grow them as we can, and continue to have our eyes open to where there may be other unmet needs and, and respond to that in time. So I'm really fortunate to have the foundation that I'm, you know, taking this the reins on. So it's it's a promising future, I think, but plenty of work ahead. And so Cindy kind of maybe flipping that question, is there anything like you feel like, oh, I didn't get to this. I really hope she can get to that. <laughs> well, you know, I'd love to stick around. Uh not really, <laughs> but it would be cool to see what happens with the you know, the campaign, the research study and the campaign for uh, children and youth to have attorneys. I think that's a really exciting, it's going to be a huge improvement on what we're doing for children right now in the child welfare system. But look, Phyllis was a proven leader, has been a proven leader. She's built programs. She was responsible for pulling together the the access site that we did. She worked very hard in the mediation program. She's done so many things. So it just seemed natural for her to just step in. I don't, we really didn't have like an assistant CEO, but she really was because Mm. she assisted in leading us through challenges and opportunities. And so um, there's not much that I think, oh, I'd like to do that instead of Phyllis. I'm grateful and happy that she's going to be the one to do it. So circling back on something, I think you brought up Cindy, which was switching the Gal Costa contract back in, in 2021. You know, so we're about close to three years since that happened. You know, we reported on it extensively. But can you just kind of tell us, you know, three years on, talk about that time, that that transition and kind of, you know, where things stand now, kind of, you know, how you mm. work through it? Well, where things stand now is that we're still here and we're very solid and working on all the things that we had discovered during our best interest representation, as Phyllis uh, listed. You know, we saw kids were suffering with their educational progress, so we put together educational liaison program. We understood that the majority of children who were in the child welfare system in Indianapolis were from the BIPOC community, so we worked on uh, race equity workshops. So you know, having all those opportunities to continue, I think, made us stronger. It was a blow, to be sure. Sure. Um, I don't think I'll ever understand why or how it happened. I certainly, um, at my age, got a good dose of, wow, that's what politics does, even for matters involving children. Um, But I would have to say, and I have said this many times, we decided to pivot, not panic, and we moved forward with a very, very strong core of attorneys who stayed with us, mediators, and other folks here at the agency. And we just began to take our strengths, as I've mentioned, the other programs, and work through. And luckily, 
almost immediately, the Division of Mental Health and Addiction recognized that, and uh, we became the access site. Then we had Leo come to us, and and we worked with them to do this. So I think all those things just really reveal the experience and knowledge that we had and the recognition that people wanted to work with us. And so we move forward. You know, what can you do? But you just move forward. Phyllis, any, anything else from that time? No, I think we are all the stronger for it. And it brought us closer together as an organization than, I mean, we were close to begin, but I think it really steeled us in a way. So no regrets, looking forward and um, it all is well. <laughs> Good to know. So we're recording this on January 8th, which is the first day of the legislative session. So any issues child advocates bring into the General Assembly this year? Well, I think we're going to keep the General Assembly informed, I hope, about our work with Leo. There are several legislators that were very interested, came to a summer study program that we had, an informal summer study program that we had that um, our director of the Track representation program, Rachel Valinsky put together. So I think there are people who are interested in the work that we're doing and how we're going to show with evidence how effective Council for Children is. So I'm not sure, Phyllis, that will be up to you if there's anything that you uh, want to bring. That I mean, that truly is what our focus is on right now. And I mean, granted, other things may arise, but that really is it. And just doing the work and being ready to share results as soon as we start to have them. So, Cindy, what are you up to these days? Whatever I want. (laughs) (laughs) I'm actually, you know, one week into retirement, and I decided to once again serve. I'm teaching a class at SPIA at IU here in town, and it's on organizational change and development. So I hope I have some things that I can impart to people. I'm looking forward to it. It starts tomorrow night. It's a master's level class, and I'm I'm really looking forward. I'm not looking forward to grading. What was I thinking? (laughs) But I'm really looking forward to uh, discussing and helping people understand the kind of leaders that they can be in the not-for-profit world. Yeah, interesting. So we've talked a lot about the issue of child representation, direct representation, and it seems like that's the focus right now. Anything else coming up, though, that you want listeners to share or to share with listeners, I should say? Phyllis, what about our mediation program and how people, how judges are, are responding to that? I mean, it's been kind of a a quiet thing that we've done in Marion County for t- over 25 years. Yeah, no, with the, as word has traveled and um, many folks that we've worked with over the years and uh, Department of Child Services have ex- left their jobs at the time and moved on to other positions throughout the state with still within DCS. And a couple of them have shared the fact that we have this really vibrant mediation program here um, in Marion County and have gotten others interested in the fact that that is a possibility. And so we are also providing that service in Madison County. And we've in both chins and termination cases, and and that's really going well. And the stakeholders there were thrilled to have that um, as an option. And they had quite a backlog of cases um, stemming really, I think, from the time of the pandemic. So we're happy to help them kind of get through, move cases along, get children to permanency faster. So it's it, it's a it's a great program. It's a, we have a small department, but we are you know happy to share our experience with folks as they are interested in it. So, well, all right, I think that'll do it for our first extended interview of 2024. So, Cindy and Phyllis, thank you again for joining me. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for having us. Listeners, as always, if you want to hear more of our interviews, you can find the Indiana Lawyer podcast at theindianalawyer.com or on your favorite podcast app. So we'll talk to you again on January 24th.